Welcome to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. This week we start a brand new module called Receiving God's Best. In this first lesson, Philip Edwards will teach on the parable of the sower, where Jesus taught the principle of the hundredfold return. He then establishes the rule of eight to be taught on the course. You must want God's best based on the story of Jacob and Esau. Please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk for all the latest news and upcoming events. We hope you enjoy today's lesson. Receiving God's best. Could ask the question probably first of all, do you want God's best? You might automatically think, yes I do. Uh, some people say, yes I do as long as he gives it all to me. Um, mm, I think you know enough about God now that that doesn't work quite like that. We would all want the best, but I've seen that many Christians settle for less than the best. They've got a very comfortable way of life. Um, They feel right with God. Um, Maybe they have enough uh, material things. Uh, Their relationships are good. So they settle into that sort of life. Uh, But God wants us to desire more, to press in more, so we can get the very best that we can have in our lives. What do I mean between having the best and settling for something less? I suppose the clearest illustration of that from Scripture is the children of Israel. When they came out of captivity in Egypt, they were about a, a year and a half They travelled and then they got to Mount Sinai where they received the pattern for the tabernacle, where they received the law of God uh, and all those good things that happened. Then they journeyed on for a few more months. So it's about 18 months after leaving Egypt. They got to a crossroads. There was the promised land this way or what? They weren't given an alternative. God said to them, you go this way into what I've prepared for you. Enter into my rest. Enter into the best that I have for you. They sent spies in, representing each tribe, to determine what the land was like. I'm not quite sure if God directed them to do that or that was their own idea. It's not that absolutely clear in Scripture. I see no problem in going in and spying out the land, but not to come back and make a decision of whether you go into it or not. The land is there to enter. God didn't give them an alternative, but they decided that they wouldn't go in. Fear got the best of them, or whatever else got the best of them, stopped them from obeying God and and entering in. So they had an alternative. The wilderness was not in the plan of God. The wilderness was the result of not going where God told them to go. So I can say to you and those listening, the best is to go where God wants us to go. If we don't go there, we don't know what the alternative is. For them, it was what we call the wilderness. Now, they were the children of God, so God had an obligation to them. He clothed them and he fed them and he made sure they had shoes. Uh, They had water supplied in the desert. He protected them from their enemies. But it said every one of them who was over the age of 20 when they made that decision, they died in the desert. It also says that God was angry, angry with them for the whole 40 years or 38 years as they journeyed in the wilderness. I don't know about you, but I don't want a wilderness life. Uh, It's wonderful that God will still look after us and protect us and we'll see him at the end, but I don't want that. I want the promised land experience. I want to enter into my rest and I want to get everything that God has prepared for me. Over the next four weeks, including tonight, we're going to be looking at eight different principles uh, that you can apply in your life to help you to receive the very best from God. 
We saw when we studied the tabernacle that God wants to draw us to himself that we can walk with him in a very deep relationship, spirit to spirit. And we're pursuing that in our life. So we enjoy his fellowship and there becomes a mutual relationship between us and God. It's, it's not like a, a parent and a child. It's like an adult and adult. We want to get to that place where we walk mutually with God. Now you say, is that possible? The God of, who created the whole universe and holds it all together, he wants to walk with me in a mutual relationship. Is that true? Is that possible? I will turn you again to the Old Testament to if we go to uh, well we start off in in the New Testament in Hebrews but in in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 there's a whole catalogue of men and women of faith from the Old Testament and one of them is a man called Enoch. Enoch was famous for one thing uh, walking uh, walking with God it says there's not much written about him although he's mentioned two or three times in the Bible and there is a book of the prophecies of Enoch but they never found themselves into scripture. Let me tell you what it says about Enoch. In Hebrews 11 and verse 5 it says this, by faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. Well that's very unique, only a few from the Old Testament ever experienced that. He didn't experience death. He could not be found. The idea being that they looked for him, but they couldn't find him anywhere. He was here one day and all of a sudden he had gone. He couldn't be found. Before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. In Genesis 5 and 24, it says this of him, Enoch walked with God, then he was no more because God took him away. So generally, if you hear people speaking about Enoch, it's like Enoch walks along the road with God. He walked with God and he just walked off into the sunset with God. He just disappeared, as it were, from this place. He walked with God. That's an interesting way to think. He didn't run ahead of him. He didn't lag behind him. He walked with him they walk side by side I can't help imagining that God had to slow down a little bit because uh, I imagine that God could walk quite quickly couldn't he but he walked with him he kept he kept in pace with him maybe God slowed down at times but there was this mutual understanding between them they respected each other in their journey God's best is that we walk with God and there is a mutual respect between us. We obviously respect God, but God respects us. We sing that song about his hope is set in us. Have you ever thought about those words? His hope, his hope is placed in us. On the one hand, there is what God makes available to us and on the other hand how we respond to what God makes available that's that mutual walking with him God makes things available and we respond in faith to what he makes available the kind of life we experience it will be determined by the interplay of what God makes available to us and how we respond to it. Just like babies want things done for them, they can't do much for themselves. They, they simply reach like this, don't they? And parents pick them up or they, they make some noises and they feed them and change them and do all those sorts of things to them. When we're new Christians, I get that. This is, this is us, oh God, just, I can't do anything. You're just so wonderful and help me help me and we seem to pray about everything and we get answers to it all and we think this is wonderful but that can't go on forever we grow up into a place where we walk with god 
mutually respecting one another. Before I share the eight principles with you, and we'll just do one tonight, I think I do two and then three and then another two in the other weeks, I want to direct you to the most important parable that Jesus ever shared in his teaching. He shared over 30 parables. I think this one is the most important because Jesus says it is. He says this in Mark 4 and 13. He says, then Jesus said to them, he said, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? So we've got to start with that parable. If we understand that one, then the teachings of God come into place and all the other teachings in the parable come into place. Now, he, he makes it very easy for us because in this parable, he explains what it's all about. He doesn't in all the others. Some he does and some he doesn't. But here we see the disciples going to him and say, explain it, please explain it. And so he goes into great detail to explain what this is all about. And of course, that's very gracious of him because if we don't understand this one, we're sunk before we get started. So he's got us going and he's, he's, he's got some tremendous truths in here. It's the parable of the sower, of course. Also, it's the hundredfold return parable. We can expect with God to receive a hundredfold from him. That's God's best. That's what he wants for all of us. Let me read this with you. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be reading from Matthew 13. I'm going to read from verses 3 to 9, which is the parable, and then l later down from 18 to 23, where he simply explains what the parable is. Verse 3, then, of Matthew 13. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed... Some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly, because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered, because they had no root. Other seeds fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plant. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred sixty and thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. Obviously, we first hear with these ears, and then we hear with the ears of our heart. We've got to hear what he's really saying. Then in Matthew 13, he explains this. He says, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. For it to be stolen, it's important that you don't understand. So the, the more understanding you can get, the less seed that the enemy will steal from you. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who receives the seed that fell on rocky ground, on rocky places rather, is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, it lasts only a short time. When the troubles or persecutions come because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who receives the seed that fell amongst the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who receives the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. I don't want to talk about the first three soils. That's another message in itself. I just want to focus on the climax of the parable. The good soil. The people who have good hearts. That's you. How do I know you have a good heart? 
well you're here that's a good indication you, you bother to come and put yourself in a place where you can hear the word of God now I'm not criticizing those that haven't come because there's, there's many millions that haven't come compared but you understand because you desire to know truth you desire to know the word of God you desire to to understand God says that's good you have a good heart in verse 23 we read there are two key factors relating to the man who produced the crop we want to produce as much as we possibly can because that is God's best the production of the things in our life pertaining to God is receiving and living out God's best he heard it at first it says and then he he understood what he heard the more you understand the more you can retain your body of knowledge of the things of God is important you want to expand that as much as you possibly can so that when you hear something new it doesn't hang out there somewhere you can attach it to what you already know knowledge is like that we start with a body of knowledge and we just increase our body of knowledge as it goes sometimes if we're told something that we can't relate to anything that we already know we lose it because we can't we can't hold it with anything Jesus himself said when anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart so it went in there but you couldn't relate it to anything else and so it went you can't hold it this is true of everyone who's represented by the good soil but there's a difference in what is produced in good soil because we're just looking at the good soil some produced a hundred seeds some 60 and some 30 so we know an ear of corn is stalk and you have ears that come from the stalk and then you have kernels kernels of seed on all the ears so just one kernel can produce a hundred that looks like a pretty healthy crop to me I don't know anything about farming at all uh, I had to do a service on Sunday about harvest giving uh, one of the churches I visited well um, the only thing I know about the seasons are the rugby season and the cricket season I don't know anything else about seasons I don't know anything about farming because I've been, I've been a suburban lad all my life and uh, the only thing I really know about harvest is when I was a kid I had to take a tin of beans to, to school and we had this harvest thing so uh, I was really ignorant but then when I thought about it in preparing my message I thought as I read the scriptures I feel sometimes like a farmer because on every page he's talking about farming isn't he and as I sort of went through book by book and I found farming illustrations just about on every page and I thought well that's the Old Testament let's get into the New Testament and I found it there everywhere all the parables of Jesus everything they were doing you know all the vines and the plagues and the pestilences and the it was all about farming and at the end I think well I'm quite an avid reader of this thing perhaps I know a bit about farming you know well only from this book anyway that uh, to produce 100 kernels from one strikes me as a very good return and Jesus says listen if you allow the seed of my word to come into you one seed has the potential of reproducing 100 seeds you go, wow that's a good return just by holding on to the word of God and listening to the word of God my life can change dramatically I mean 60 would be good wouldn't it 30 is good they're all described as good but to get a hundred fold return I think that's brilliant so the more you apply yourself the more you learn the more you listen and the more you study the more you can hold the more you can produce 
and the less the devil can snatch away because if if the seed goes in and it attaches to the knowledge that you already have because you understand it you won't lose it you won't lose it God wants every one of us to produce our best that might be only 30 but that would be great sometimes I think you know of first-generation Christians that have no history of parents or grandparents in their lives they're really up against it they've they've struggled you know in life and they've been taught such terrible things possibly I'm not saying that everyone who's not a Christian is terrible I'm not saying that but but you know depending on the family background that you have it can be to produce a 30-fold return that would be fantastic and maybe the next generation as as they were brought up in the things of God would produce a 60 and then the third and fourth generations maybe a hundredfold return so our inheritance as Christians is vital the homes that we're brought up in the stories that our parents told us the principles that they lived out before us see to so much has been given and much is expected maybe God is looking for a higher return from some than he is for others but he's looking for the best he can possibly get from that person in Luke's account of this same parable and remember we should always when you're looking to the scriptures and you're reading uh, an incident that's recorded in the gospels you've got to check out if it's in the other gospels and then look at them and read them all together because you'll get a more rounded story uh, or if you're preaching on a particular thing you can choose which one you want to uh, preach from because it's more suited to what you want to say no I didn't say that at all okay but you understand what I'm saying so so but Luke says some added things to what uh, has already been said listen to this in Luke 8 and 15 but the seed on good soil it stands for those with a noble and a good heart I like that to have a noble and good heart and these people who have noble and good hearts they hear the word they retain the word and by perseverance they produce a crop so having a noble and good heart is also important in this whole process of receiving God's best and living in God's best if your heart is a bit slippery a bit devious it you say one thing but do another you have something of double standards you're not sincere in your life that's not a good and noble heart you won't hold on to the word of God if your heart is like that but if you are open and sincere and you don't cover things up you're an honest honest open person there are no double standards in your life what you say and what people see is who you are both in public and in private that's an honest person someone with a noble heart and that person talks about a threefold response then that noble person hears the word he retains the word and he perseveres he has to persevere for the crop to be produced in his life you've heard it many times if you go to church I'm sure we live in this instant society you know we want it straight away uh, someone prayed for me but nothing happened oh it's a waste of time oh where'd you get that idea from let's pray and let's wait on God and let's thank God for the answer and let's persevere in this let's be patient with this let's God has given you 70 80 years it's all right he's patient he's working it all out in your life he's extremely patient with us and so we need to be patient as we allow the word of God to take root and to produce that harvest in our lives the course of our lives is determined by the choices that we make 
I do think we are morally responsible for making choices in our lives. It's awful to blame other people when we are held responsible before God. I think I said last time, and you'll pick this up, um, I'm not a Calvinist in my doctrine. I'm Arminian. I do very much, I do believe in the sovereignty of God, uh, but I do believe in the free will of man. And somehow we've got to bring these two together and hold them, I believe, in some sort of tension. But if I'm going to go one way or the other, and Christians tend to do this, I'm probably going to go for the free will of man. That's where I'm going to settle, because I don't want to make excuses or reasons. I want to be responsible for my moral choices in life. When God meets me, I don't want to find that God has manipulated my life, that I didn't have any choice, but I chose to love him. I chose to serve him. I chose to give my life to him. I chose to surrender all to him. I chose to lay my life down on the altar of sacrifice. He didn't make me do that. It wasn't though I was choiceless. That's why I tend to go that side. But that doesn't mean I throw away the sovereignty of God thing. I don't know how that works sometimes, that God somehow lets us make choices and we end up where he wants us to be. It's, it's a little bit beyond me, but I'm not going to throw one out for the other. How much fruit do you intend to produce in your life? So you have a choice. I believe you have a choice. Will you be satisfied with 30 or 60 or 100 fold? What are you satisfied with? And be honest with your answers. Sometimes we give the answers that we know we should give. But be honest. Do I want the good, the better or the best? What does the best look like? I think it looks like Jesus. <laughs> Here he goes again. That's typical, Philip. The best is Jesus. It's got to be. He came to show us how man should and could live in this world, in the kingdom. What was potentially possible. It wasn't potentially possible for old covenant people. But under the new covenant, where Christ comes and dwells on the inside of us and his spirit lives in us, I believe it's potentially possible. Remember that verse in Romans 12 and 2? I think last time I told you it was one of my favourite verses. It'd probably come up in every series of talks I do. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good is pleasing and his perfect will. The good, the better and the best. We go on from glory to glory. It's also clear in scripture that God wants you to produce much fruit in your life. In John chapter 15, remember he's in the upper room and he's talking to the disciples. The next day he's going to his crucifixion and he gives them reassurance, comfort, encouragement because the next three days of their life is going to be terrible, awful for them. This one who they've pinned everything on has gone, been murdered, slaughtered, in front of them their lives fall apart but he encourages them in many things especially in the production of fruit in our lives this is what he says in John 15 verses 1 and 2 he says I am the true vine I am I am the source of life he's saying and my father is the gardener he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes or he cleans or he lifts up so it will be even more fruitful 
God wants you to be fruitful in your life, to bear much fruit, to be the best, to receive the very best from God. In John 5 and 15, a couple of verses down, it says, If any man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit in his life. Again, in verse 8, just three verses later, it says, This is my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit. And finally, in that dialogue in verse 16, he says, I chose you and I appointed you to go and to bear fruit in your lives. The plan of God is that you bear fruit, you bear much fruit, you bear more fruit. It's the principle then that we gain from that parable as we receive the word of God and we hold on to it and we rotate it and we persevere with it and we stick with it, it will produce in our lives. As you hear the word, the word of God has an effect of washing and cleansing and restoring and refreshing and renewing without you knowing what's going on. As we expose ourselves to the word of God it has a spiritual effect on our lives sometimes we think ah oh, I don't know if I understood that or oh, I've forgotten what you said or I didn't grasp the full meaning of that it's important that we do understand but the word in itself sanctifies us it cleanses us simply by putting ourselves under the word like if we put ourselves under water and without soap and, and washing water will clean us it has that effect on our life. So God wants the very best for us. And he wants us to be fruitful in our lives. What's the first principle then that we can look at this evening? It's this. You must want God's best. You must want it if you don't want it, you won't get it. You say, well, that's, that's a bit obvious. But you have to ask Christians, do you want the very best that God has for you? Will, will you put yourself out to get the best, to, to produce the fruit? You have to make your mind up. Then you must settle for nothing less than the best and remember God never forces us it's our choice and sometimes we can start off really well and passionate to get hold of things but when the going gets tough we ease off when the pressure comes from either inside or outside, from the enemy or from the world or, or from other Christians or whatever, we back off. We ease back a little bit. See, it's your decision whether you're going to press on. I suppose to illustrate this, I need to land on a particular story where I think it illustrates it brilliantly. Of course, it's the story of Jacob and Esau. Isn't it interesting we talk about Jacob and Esau? It should really be Esau and Jacob, shouldn't it? Esau was the oldest, but, but Jacob came first out of this deal. There's some very remarkable things spoken about um, Jacob and Esau. In Malachi 1, in the first two verses, or two and three rather, the Lord says, I've loved Jacob, but Esau have I hated. That's a bit strong. Um, it was bad enough that God was angry with the people in the wilderness, but to say God hates somebody uh, is a very strong word. So I think he's, I want to I ease it a little bit for you. He elects this one and not that one. These are sheep and these are goats. Um, he smiles favorably on these and not on these because the prophet here wants to make it as stark as he possibly can. And these are God's words. 
He wants us to realise how important it is. They were twins. And uh, yeah, Esau came out first. Jacob was the second. Why was God's attitude towards these two twins so completely different? They grew up in a family, a very religious family. Their father was Isaac, the son of Abraham. So they knew what it was all about. Paul helps us out here in Romans chapter 9, verses 10 and 13. This, this makes this whole thing even worse. It says this, not only that, but Rebecca, sorry, Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purposes and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older one will serve the younger, that was true just as it is written jacob have i loved and esau have i hated as we look through this story we're going to realize why god loved one and hated the other and we have to be sure that we find ourselves on the side of jacob before they were born, before they'd done anything good or bad, God loved one and hated the other. How is this so? How, how does this work? I'm glad I've got my chart up here this week. Uh, we're going to come here. I'm sorry for those on the, on the podcast because uh, they'll lose this a bit and I can't describe it all, but uh, I'll describe as best as I can if we draw a line here at the base and I do a couple of arrows at each end because the line is eternal God is an eternal God so let's let's put God up here and uh, uh, am I going to draw God let's have a think um, no I, I yeah Tricky, tricky drawing God, isn't it? Um, let's go. Hmm. Uh, hmm. Bit of a problem. Okay. I could just put God on a throne, I suppose. Hmm. Or I could put God as... Uh, a God who sees everything. Yes, a God who sees everything, a God who is eternal, a God who has no beginning and has no end, the Omer and the other one, whatever it is. That's it, Alpha. How could I forget Alpha? Forgive me. The Alpha and the Omega, he sees everything. God lives throughout time, but with God there is no time. He's eternal. He, he somehow comprehends the whole of eternity. And this gets really weird now. You're not going to get this because no one gets this. He can comprehend the whole of eternity at once. I've already lived. I'm already in eternity. And living out eternity. God can see it. He knows everything. He knows everything. So let's go back to our timeline down here. Hmm. Okay, this is, put a little line, a dot on the line, and uh, we call this creation. How, how eternity went on before, billions of years, but with God there are no years, only here. And now 4,000 years later, we have an event called the cross and then two to three thousand years later we don't know when it is we know that Jesus will return and when he comes we'll come back here with him so this is the return 
so somewhere between the cross and the return, here's my life. I put three little marks for my life. This is when I was born. This is when I received Christ. And this is when I died. So God, who sees all things from the perspective of eternity, he sees all this at once. He knows my life. He knows everything about my life. He knows when I was born and when I received Christ and he knows when I died, he knows when I'll return. He knows, he sees everything. So he saw Jacob's life. He saw Esau's life from the perspective of eternity. And he could say, Jacob have I loved because what he did and the choices that he made and Esau have I hated because of the decisions that he made and the choices that he made. That means before, before, you can't go before eternity, but before time, you can't have time with God, see it's a mess. So before, before, as God looks, before the foundation of the earth, I think scripture puts it like, he saw me, he saw me before the foundation of the earth, and he saw you, and it says, he fixed his love upon you, but you weren't even here. But from God's perspective, you were. And why did he fix his love upon you? Because he saw you receive Christ as your personal saviour. And so before you were ever born, he loved you. He loved you. But those who have rejected Christ, I don't want to use that word, but it's scriptural. He hates them because they count the things of God as nothing or worthless, which we'll discover that's what Esau did. But Jacob considered the things of God as vital and important. So Jacob, he loved and he saw, he hated. I said before I'm Arminian, you have to be Arminian to believe that, sorry. If you're Calvinist, you come up with a different story, but it's all right. I get to say what I think up here. Uh, you can preach when you like and say what you think, but, but I'm not anti those other thoughts. I mean, I don't know if I'm right. It's how I see it, you understand? There's other things that I'm sure I'm not right about that God will have to correct me on. I heard this wonderful illustration about this this election thing I'll, I'll just share it with you because it'll be helpful and then when you preach you can use it uh, don't think you won't preach you don't know you see there was a man who um, he wanted to be married and so there were two women that were in front of him there was Mary and there was Jane and he loved them both and they would both make wonderful wives for him because he could only have one and he knew something in advance. He knew that if he asked Mary, then Mary would say no to him. But he knew that if he pursued Mary, she would eventually say, yes, she would marry him. And he knew this about Jane, that if he asked Jane to marry him, she would say no. And if he pursued her, she would still say no. So who did he choose? He must have chosen Mary, mustn't he? He elected Mary. Mary, he loved. Jane, he hated. I said, it's a strong word. He didn't elect her. He elected Mary because he knew what Mary would do. That's how I see this working out in our lives. This makes me feel really secure in God. Oh, it's like from eternity to eternity. I was in the heart and mind of God and he loved me always. 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 
billions and billions of years ago God loved me and in billions and billions of years in that he will love me because when I was presented with the facts and the truth about Jesus Christ I said yes I'll tell you what the other side of the argument is just briefly to be presented with both sides is important a Calvinist would say yes you're presented with the truth but unless God makes you alive first you cannot receive the truth so in the sovereignty of God he chooses to make you alive because you were dead in your trespasses and sins he chose to make you alive and by making you alive you then once presented with the gospel can choose but because you've been made alive you will choose for God but if he doesn't want to make somebody alive he doesn't and they stay dead in their sins those are crudely the two sides of the argument I settle for you know what I settle for but you have to work that out yourself it's not for me to tell you and of course it's been a problem in the church for thousands of years wonderful scholarly men have sat and thought this through and argued the different scriptures but we're still no further to knowing what it is we come to a decision in our own mind unfortunately you can't be told what to believe you can be told the gospel of Jesus Christ and that's the truth but so much then is how we receive the word and how we let it apply to our lives and you have to make those decisions two very important questions what did God see in Jacob that he approved of um, what did he see in Esau's life that he disapproved of reading the stories and they don't go into great detail I would have thought Esau was a bit of a good bloke uh, nice chap um, just cool you know just easy living uh, give no one any hassle you do what you like me I'm going hunting outdoor life sort you know and yeah it was his father's pet his favorite his father loved him more than he did his other brother sorry but <laughs> but you know how the Bible describes him godless great bloke but godless Jacob on the other hand I don't think I'd have liked Jacob crafty devious determined a twister he's called some a twister mummy's boy always around the home doing cooking and needlecraft I suppose well he definitely enjoyed cooking but you know he was godly isn't it interesting see you'd be wrong to judge people mm. because we see the external and we would make wrong judgments you see but God sees the heart sometimes I look at people and thinking wow I mean are they really Christians that's not our, our place to say that I mean we are to make some judgments in that we have to guard ourselves and protect ourselves and watch over the flock and all that so I understand all that but we don't really know deep down what's going on Jacob appreciated the things of God but even in his appreciation he was still a twister he was still a dealer remember remember when he was there at Bethel and he had the vision of the ladder going up to heaven and he said let's make a deal God you bless me and I'll give you a tenth what's that all about he was like that all the time 
Remember his brother was out hunting one day and he was exhausted and famished. And he comes home and uh, his brother Jacob is cooking some stew or something really. Oh, he says, give me some of that. And he says, I'll give it to you if you promise one day to give me your birthright. Now, there was no birthright handed over there, but you see something of the deceitful deviousness of that young man. How disgusting. The most valuable thing that this young man could receive, which would be his inheritance as the eldest, a double inheritance, he would receive the name and the fortune and everything that went, the blessing of being the eldest son. It would come through him. And he got him to say, oh yeah, I don't care about those things. He didn't. Now, that conversation didn't mean he lost his birthright, but we see from it that his heart was not for God. Jacob he deceived his father, didn't he? When it came to the birthright thing, he made sure he was gonna get it. I mean, his poor old dad was like way past it, you know, blind and couldn't, you know, get on. And, and that devious wife of his, how she swindled it, or I mean, oof. And then he runs off, remember, Jacob? And he goes to live with his uncle. And he cons him, doesn't he? all the time he's so devious i mean when you read it you think oh we didn't do anything wrong oh we did he swindled his uncle out of just about everything he possibly could most people would have gone for esau but god said esau have i hated and jacob have i loved why well like I said, he appreciated what God had to give him. And he wanted, he wanted God's best in his life. While Esau was indifferent about the blessings. Esau so much didn't care. And when he found he had lost everything, he said he tried to seek it again with tears. But God said, no. You can come to a place where forgiveness is not granted to you anymore. And repentance isn't granted to you anymore. That's a scary place to be, isn't it? By saying no, 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 continually in our lives, the Spirit of God does not always contend with us. Jacob ran away, afraid of his brother. His mother said, you better go because he's really mad. He'll kill you. As soon as his father dies, he'll kill you. So you better run. So he runs away and of course he goes to his uncle and he defrauds him out of all sorts of things. Then 20 years later, he comes back. And in coming back, he's, um, he's frightened because he thinks he's going to meet his brother. He hasn't spoken to him or heard anything for years and years. And so to appease him, he sends his family on ahead all his wives and his children and then all the cattle and everything he pushes it on ahead and says if you meet my brother give him these gifts and these gifts and these gifts make it easier for me when I meet up with him and he stays back and that night when he stays back God sends an angel to him so Jacob it says in Genesis 32 now 24 to 28. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Sometimes you've got to stop and ponder. Just meditate on the word of God. Fancy wrestling with an angel. 
Now, most angels I know about are about nine foot tall. So how he wrestled with this angel, I think it was more like clinging to his legs, you know, like Jonah Lomo. Do you remember Jonah Lomo? He just ran through everyone and they couldn't even grab hold of his legs. Never mind, that's a bit me slipping into something else there. Anyway, he wrestles with this angel. It says, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched his socket here of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. I've got to go now. I can't stay here. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. This is the key. This is the key to this. Whatever happened to Jacob over those 20 years, God had 20 years to work on this man. And now he's wrestling with the angel and he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what's your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled, not with an angel, but with God. I don't think it was just that night. I think that symbolized. I think it symbolized the 20 years that he had struggled. He had struggled in his life. He, he had wrestled with God in his life. You have to wrestle with God sometimes in your life. We go from faith to faith, the Bible teaches. To go from faith to faith, you have to wrestle with God in your life. It's a struggle. Remember when the disciples were with Jesus and he feeds the 5,000. Do you remember that? that was, they were in a level of faith. It was the year of God's blessing in, in, uh, in Christ's life. He had a year of uh, prosperity, then it was terrible after that. It got terrible. Uh, so he's he's there with all these thousands of people and the disciples are all up for it you know they they got faith in what god can do and so they feed the five thousand and they're all excited about that and they think this is wonderful this is great and then he disappears remember they wanted to make him king so he goes and hides and they think he's gone we'll just go home and so they get into the boat and they rowed that's a long way to row. I don't know why they rowed. Anyway, they rowed. And as they're rowing, they see this, it thinks an apparition. It's a ghost who's walking towards them. Of course, it's Jesus. And they're terrified. And he tells them, calm down, it's me, it's, it's me, it's me. And they have this traumatic experience. And then they land at the shore and they're in Capernaum. And while they're at Capernaum, that's when he has this great speech with them. And they're all about, they must eat his flesh and drink his blood, remember? And the people all desert him. And they see Jesus now in his humility and in his vulnerability. And so they have to enter into a faith with Jesus in his humility. Jesus says to them, he says, are you going as well? See the difference, the scene, feeding the 5,000, all on top of the world. This is fantastic. And now everyone's deserting him and running away. And he's saying, will you eat my flesh and drink my blood? Will you receive me? into yourself will you let me live in and through you they have to enter into a different type of faith in Jesus it's not based on miracles and fireworks and healings and all this stuff it's based on 
humility and vulnerability. See, they had to go through something of a trauma in their hearts to get from that level of faith to this level of faith. Of course, we want to see miracles every day, don't we? We want to see God doing great things and wonderful things, but there's a level of faith where he enters into us and he tells us exactly what we can do and what we can't do and how we live our lives from one degree of faith to another. He said to the angel, I'll not let you go until you bless me. That's the key of God's favour upon our life. That's the key of blessing. To lay hold of God and not to let go until he blesses. We have to wrestle with God. It's a, it's a bit mean. Why don't he just give it to us? He can see how sincere I am. That's not good enough. You have to wrestle things from God. God didn't condone his flaws. He didn't think it's all right. But because he wanted the best, God loved him. See, sometimes we're so caught up about not sinning, aren't we? Now, don't mishear me. I'm not supposed to sin. But it's not the biggest thing, is it? See, you can, you can live a pretty decent life, but do you really want God? Do you want the best that God can give you? See, as Christians, we can be godless. We're comfortable in what we got. We don't, we don't want the best. We can be indifferent towards what God has to offer. Or we can desire the things, the things of God, and wrestle them from him. Do you want the best? That's what I'm asking you. That's the first thing. Poor old Doris Day. She got criticised a lot, didn't she? In the Christian world. Do you remember? Remember what she sang? Daphne, come on. You don't remember. Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Que sera, sera. Oh, whatever, God. It's all down to you, God. Lord, do what you want to do, God. That's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. Jesus said, I call you my friends. I tell you why I call you my friends, because we can do business together, me and you. There's only two people he called friends in the Old Testament, weren't there? Remember Moses and Abraham? And on both cases, God said, I'm going to do something, but I better check it out with my friend first. He said, I'm going to destroy Sodom because I've heard some terrible things, but I'm going to check it out with my man Abraham first. And Abraham entered into a dialogue and a conversation and seemed to change the very mind of God. And with Moses, he said, I'm sick and tired of all these people grumbling and complaining day and night. It drives me mad. I'm just going to wipe them out and I'll start again with you, Moses. And Moses said, whoa, slow down, God. He called them his friends. He dialogued with them. He spoke over with them. Jesus said, I now call you my friends, no longer my servants. See, there's a place where we can get where we stop serving and we become a friend of his. 
And you know what he said? My friends know my business. That's what it says. It actually says they know his business. I've been praying lately. Jesus, I want you to share some of your business with me. Can you just share some stuff with me? Because I want to know what you're thinking about stuff. Lord, what are you doing in Hastings? Can we have a little chat about this? After all, we're friends. I don't want you to do something in Hastings that we haven't had a chat about. And you say, that's a bit forward of you, Phil. Maybe. Can we talk about this, Lord? I mean, if you bring a revival to Hastings, I would like to know before, or if you're going to totally ignore us, can we talk about this, please? Just like Abraham did, or Moses did. It's not Kesara, Sarah. It's being a friend of God. To produce a crop yielding a hundredfold, to receive God's best, we can't be indifferent about the things of God. We must be passionate to be prepared to wrestle from him the best that he has for us. And only when we look and walk and talk like Jesus can we rest. We press on and pursue the very best. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast, The Hundredfold Return. We hope you enjoyed the lesson today and we'll come back next week. In the meantime, if you would like to give a donation to Arise Ministry, please head on over to our website at ariseministry.org.uk where you can give a donation securely online. Arise Ministry, a living legacy. Thank you.